Well, welcome back to Wednesday nights, week number two, two out of 10. A uh, couple quick announcements as we get started. Um, a couple of people asked, is there any way to get the slides? Um, they're going to be posted on the Calvary Church Watch page. So if you go to the website under watch, you'll see the video there. And then each week there'll be the slides posted there. This week's obviously are not there and last week's are not, but they'll be up there this week, okay? I usually don't have the slides done till after lunch, so they won't be there much before Wednesday after lunch, but uh, it'll be near then, all right? And uh, also, if you have children in children's ministry or somebody in Bridge, um, we, the goal here is to end 8.05-ish, between 8, 8.05, somewhere in there. Um, but please don't go pick up children or loiter in their hallway until 8.15. I got yelled at a little bit this week. We got a little early last time, and some of you wandered over there and were causing great havoc. And so I, I got blamed. All right, let me pray and we'll get rolling. Lord, thank you for uh, causing us to gather together and giving us purposeful things to think about. Lord, things that uh, stretch our minds, uh, but not just our minds, uh, stretch our lives. Lord, we're thankful that as we were going our own way, headed in our own direction, that by your grace, you stepped into our lives and you made a difference. And now you call us to be part of your making the difference in the whole world. And so, Lord, we pray that we would cooperate with your plan and with your will, and that you'd be honored by that, other people would be served, and that we would benefit as well. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, just a little bit of review. Uh, we started last week in our pillar series by talking a little bit about inputs, insights, and integration, remember? And what I tried to say to you is, we need some, I need some kind of a mechanism that allows us to make sense of, record, and then remember significant things that are being poured into our lives. And so I guess I've been playing with this for a couple of months and it's been helpful to me. And I was thinking this afternoon, it's kind of like a giant funnel. And at the wide end of the funnel, we have all of these different inputs. You know, maybe you read the Bible, you go to church, you have conversations with friends, you're reading other books, you have conversations at work, you have performance evaluations, all these different inputs being poured into your life. Well, every once in a while, some of the inputs coalesce, God kind of opens your eyes through one of them, and then you have insight. And we said insight even sounds like that, right? Oh, I see it, I get it. Well, we need to record the insights because if you're anything like me, something that is really insightful and is really life-changing or so it seems is pretty quickly forgotten, right? And a couple weeks later, you're trying to remember what it was. And so we need a way to, out of all of the inputs, to formulate some insights and we need a way to remember them or record them. Out of the insights, smaller yet, will be the things that need to be integrated or lived out in our lives. And I'm using the word integration, not as a one-time application. I'm saying, what are those things that are growing out of the insights that need to be made part of your life? They need to become part of the pattern, part of what you practice as a habit over and over again. So the big end of the funnel, inputs, and then insights, fewer, and then integration. What are some things that you need to make part of your life? Well, after we did that, and I'm hoping you'll do that over the next few weeks, and maybe even did that from last week, uh, we then tried to answer two basic questions or one big question last week. And that is, what is ministry? Or what is mission? 
You know, we talk a lot in church at Calvary Church, and I'm sure if you go to another church or you attend any church, you're going to hear the word ministry, ministries used all the time. Well, what do we mean? You hear about the church's mission. Here we talk about continuing what Jesus started. That's not only our motto, that's our mission. Well, what is ministry? What is mission? And we came up with this definition, and it took us kind of an hour to get there, and you're thinking, yeah, you're long-winded. Well, here's the definition that we came up with. Ministry is being used by God to influence people to move from where they are to where God wants them to be. And we said that that's pretty simple to diagram, pretty simple to state, but pretty complex after you think about it for a while. You have to know something about where God wants people to be. And that changes somewhat based on culture, based on background, based on family of origin, based on country, right? That changes. Where are people? That drastically changes based on demography, based on geography, based on religion, lots of different starting places. And then we talked about means of influence. We use the word bridges, not bridge ministry, but bridges of ministry or mission, means of influence. And we said, that's complex too. You can talk about evangelism, discipleship, leadership, management. All of those things are means of influence of moving people from where they are to where God wants them to be. And we're not coercive in that. We are in process ourselves. We don't stand over at the target having already arrived. Um, Paul will even say in Philippians, not that I've attained it. I'm still in process. We call people to the process that we're part of. As we're moving to where God wants us to be, we call people to join us in that journey. So that was kind of last week's topic. And that isn't even a pillar. Uh, That's kind of our definition uh, that provides the context for our pillars. And we said, in order to be good at ministry, in order to accomplish mission, we've got to balance at least two things. And we talked about faithfulness and relevance. We've got to be faithful to the gospel, faithful to the scripture, but also relevant to the listener. We need to speak in a language that they understand. We need to speak in illustrations and make application that makes sense in their context. Relevance and faithfulness, those two things always in balance, but that's pretty tough, right? Um, I used to say, when I, when I taught at a seminary, I used to always say to the students, um, you need to spend some time in the library, you know, figuring out what the Bible says, do language work, study scripture, and you also need to spend time understanding what's going on in the world, Uh, Some people, some students need to get out of the library and go live life. Some need to live life that have been living up. They need to go to the library once in a while and check out some things. So faithfulness, naturalness, or faithfulness, relevance, we need to um, balance them. Well, tonight, we're going to look at our first pillar. It'll probably take us um, two weeks to completely develop it, but we're going to get started tonight. And if you like you know, maybe new ideas, or if you like to revisit ideas, if you like learning new, some new vocabulary tonight, it'll be good. If you want to kind of see what the outcome is from the first pillar, next week will, will be more for you. But hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll try to make it fun tonight, even though it may have some boring parts to it. Um, so the first pillar is that the Bible is a big story. The Bible's a big story. I was reminded of, of that reality this morning. Um, I'm sitting reading. And this morning I finished Exodus, and Exodus is pretty exciting. Second half is all about building the temple and stuff. You get kind of bored in the details. Um, But then you turn the page from Exodus to Leviticus, and things really get boring. 
how he killed these animals, what he do with the blood, rip off the head, you know, don't tear the back. I mean, it's pretty nasty. Um, but Leviticus begins where Exodus ends. And so Exodus begins, right? The Israelites are in Egypt. Through Moses, God delivers them. They go to Mount Sinai. God then gives the Ten Commandments. And on Mount Sinai, that's where God gives all of the directions and all the blueprints to build the tabernacle. So Moses comes down. They collect all, in Exodus still, they collect all the materials, right, to build the, to build the tabernacle. And at the end of Exodus, the tabernacle's built. The Spirit of God, right, the cloud that was leading them, the cloud by day, fire by night, that was leading them. Now that pillar, God's presence, fills the tabernacle, right? That's how Exodus ends. Where does Leviticus begin? Leviticus begins by explaining what's going to happen in the tabernacle now. So tabernacle is now constructed. Leviticus begins by saying, well, here's what you do in the tabernacle now. And it's kind of interesting, at least it is to me, that worship in the Old Testament which is most of the Bible, by the way, isn't really gathering to sing songs and listen to sermons. Worship in the Old Testament is bringing your sacrifice and finding forgiveness with God. The ultimate priority in worship is reconciliation with God according to God's design by his grace, not by our works. So worship is kind of like a drama. It's enacting how this reconciliation, how this forgiveness happens. So that's what Leviticus is about. When Leviticus is over, Numbers picks up, and what happens? They then pick up, and they start making their way to the promised land. Deuteronomy, they make it to the promised land, to the threshold of the promised land. Joshua, right? Joshua comes. Moses can't lead them in. Joshua leads them into the promised land. And so the Bible is a big story. It all kind of fits together. When you come to the end of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, it doesn't sound like an ending, does it? It kind of says, now, you know, one day Elijah's going to come and Elijah's going to turn the hearts of the parents to their children, children to their parents. Something else is coming. So even at the end of the Old Testament, the story isn't over. Something's going to continue. You turn the page from Malachi to Matthew and all of a sudden you read about John the Baptist, the Elijah that was coming. So the Bible's a big story. And that's pretty important for us to remember because we can often read the Bible and approach the Bible as if it were not a story. One of my uh, favorite quotes, and we'll hear a video at the end by this guy, Stephen James. He's a, he, he has a book called Story, and he's kind of looking at the scripture. Uh, this quote, um, you need to get the slide and you need to think about this. Here's what Stephen says. When Christianity becomes something other than entering into and living out the story of God, it becomes something other than Christianity. God's story isn't over. It's still being told today. Each one of us has the potential to become both a chapter of history and a chapter of his story. The Bible's a story, but the story doesn't really end in Revelation God's story continues, and we're part of that story. And the key to living the Christian life, living as Jesus called us to live, we read our lives into that story. So technically speaking, right, you should never apply the Bible to your life. That's opposite. You should apply your life to the Bible. You should be reading your life 
into the Bible story. Not taking something of the story and applying it to your life. If you're applying the Bible to your life, you're, you have all the momentum, right? You're the engine. You've set the trajectory and now you're taking the Bible and you're trying to apply something to your life. Technically speaking, we should be applying our lives to the Bible. That is where the engine and the trajectory of the Christian life is. That'll hopefully make sense, maybe a little better if it doesn't yet. All right, here's how we go. In case you haven't noticed, the Bible's intimidating. All right, I mean, it's big. It's got real thin pages. You ever notice that? I mean, that, that kind of freaks you out, doesn't it? I mean, how, many, how many books do you read that, is, that have thin pages like the Bible does? Now, I, I just took some of, you know, I, I took the page numbers right off my Bible to sit on my platform there. It's over 1,300 pages. Yours may be longer or shorter, depending on how many notes you have in it. Um, how many of you have read five books this past year that have more than 1,300 pages in them? I mean, that's a big book, right? And so you look at it, the Bible's intimidating, real thin pages, 1,300 pages. It gets worse. 66 books. Technically, the Bible isn't one book. It's a, it's a library. In fact, the word Bible means collection of books. It isn't one. It's a whole library of books. Do you know that the Bible was written by more than 40 authors? There's not one author. Now, ultimately, the spirits, right, kind of moving people to write, over 40 different authors. The Bible was written in three languages, not English or American, neither. The Bible was written in Hebrew and Greek, basically. A few chapters are written in Aramaic. So they're foreign languages to us, right? In fact, they're dead languages. Nobody speaks biblical Hebrew today. Nobody speaks biblical Greek today. Nobody speaks biblical Aramaic. The Greek that's spoken in Greece is not the Greek of the, of the New Testament. The Hebrew spoken in Israel is not the Hebrew of the Old Testament. They're dead languages. Now, the good news is if you're going to study those languages, the two most difficult parts of learning a language are speaking it and understanding it when you hear it. You don't have to do either of those because nobody speaks Greek or Hebrew and nobody hears Greek or Hebrew. Um, so it's not written in English. And I may say or may not say later, here's something that you may miss when it comes to language. Language is more than a means of communication. Language is a way of thinking. If you know more than one language, you know what I'm saying. Language is a way of thinking. When you think in English, that's different than thinking in Spanish. If you think in German, that's different than thinking in Russian. Language is a way of thinking, not just a way of communicating. Um, I was flipping, flipping through the stations, uh, this was a couple of years ago, but I still remember it. Flipping through the stations, and there was a show on, I guess it was PBS or whatever, and it was about Einstein and the theories of relativity. It had these marbles kind of going around, the I, I didn't understand it. But then they had Einstein's quote, and here's what Einstein said. He didn't say it, they, somebody read it, but this is what he said. I could not have thought of the theories of relativity in the language of German or English. I needed the language of mathematics to think of relativity. See, it's, it's a way of thinking, right? And so when you're reading the Old Testament, you're reading it in English, 
But the writers weren't thinking English, they're thinking Hebrew, and that's different. And when you're reading the New Testament, those categories, it's different than Hebrew, and it feels different, right? Even when you read the New Testament and the Old Testament, even though you read them both in English. Well, anyway, enough of that. The Bible was written over a period of almost 2,000 years. So it wasn't like these 40 authors sat down in one weekend, they wrote the 66 books. No, they were written over 2,000 years. I mean, that means when some parts of the Bible were written, the other parts weren't written for 2,000 years yet. I mean, that's a pretty big time span, right? I remember when I had a church in New York, um, not sure if you're familiar with New York, but uh, St. John the Divine Church, kind of being built uptown, um, still isn't finished yet. In fact, it probably may or may not be finished this century. It takes cathedrals a long time to be built, right? It took the Bible a long time to be written, like 2,000 years. That creates some interesting dynamics. It was written on three different continents. Did you know that? It was written in Africa, right? Egypt. It was written in Asia and was written in Europe, three different continents. And it was completed almost 2,000 years ago. It wasn't completed last month. It wasn't completed in 1776. It was completed 2,000 years. A lot of stuff's happened in 2,000 years, hasn't it? Let me um, see if I can show you what I mean. I've got a group of theologians. Um, I think you'll be able, able to understand the point. The language may be a little complex. I'm going to show you a video that will trace out some of the difference, some of the you know, distance in time and geography that makes it hard for us to understand something that was recorded 70 years ago, about 100 miles away. Watch. What's so terrible about learning to do the mambo? Everybody does it now. Everybody does it, Alice? Everybody does it? Well, I don't mean everybody. You said everybody does, does it. it. I don't know anybody does the mambo. I don't do it. Norton doesn't do it. My grandmother never did it. <laughs> Tell me everybody does it. All right, Ralph. Let's just not discuss it anymore. We now. won't discuss it anymore. Your mumbo days are over. You want to wiggle, wiggle over to the stove and get my stuff. <laughs> Wait a minute. What's that? Tuna fish. We're going to have tuna fish salad. Tuna fish? What am I, a cat or something? <laughs> I'll tell you why I can't have a hot meal. Because you're doing this. All right, Ralph. I guess the lesson lasted a little longer today, and I lost track of the time. Oh, is that why? Because the lesson lasted a little longer? I suppose every man in this building is going to have a cold meal, including him. Well, let me tell you something. I know whose fault it is. I know whose fault it is. It's Carlos's fault. And it's not only the mamba. It's not only the mamba, Alice. Not by a long shot it isn't the mamba. It's the other things he does, the fancy manners he has and he parades around with. That's putting nutty ideas in your head. Sure, Ralph. You think he's a troublemaker. Well, I have got news for you, Ralph. You and Norton and some of the men in this building can learn an awful lot of things from Carlos. He happens to be a gentleman, Ralph. And that seems to be something that you have forgotten all about. He treats us like women. That's something you've forgotten too, Ralph. You seem to have forgotten that I am a woman. I forgot that you're a woman? How could I? You're always yapping. <laughs> 
you like a woman. I treat you like a woman. I let you sew, I let you cook, I let you wash the windows, I let you clean up. <laughs> Boys don't do that, Alice. That's right, Ralph. That's all a wife is to you, Ralph. Just a handy utensil to have around the house. A wife can cook and slave and clean for you all day long. You would never think of saying something pleasant to her. You wouldn't even think of doing a simple little gentlemanly thing like tipping your hat. All right. About 70 years ago, a hundred miles away, it almost feels like centuries ago, doesn't it? You couldn't produce that and show that on television tape. Not very politically correct in the 50s, right? Um, think of some of the things that were evident there and real to them. How many of you know what the Mambo is or not? Some, right? Probably older folks do. Um, do you realize not only are there no cell phones, there's no phone in the apartment. They have a one-bedroom, two-room apartment. If you know some of the other episodes, they have an icebox, a real icebox, not a refrigerator, an icebox. Some of the episodes, their bill, their electric bill, is like 35, 40 cents. Norton's upstairs, he comes down. The men belong to a lodge. Women, what do they do? They stay at home moms, stay at home wives. They cook and they clean, they sew. How many of you women sew on a regular basis, right? Um, it seems like light years ago. It's hard for us to imagine that world 70 years ago. Try to imagine the world 4,000 years ago. Halfway around the world, not 100 miles up 95. Social distance, geographical distance, cultural distance makes a tremendous difference, almost impossible for us to feel and understand what's going on. If we have trouble with the honeymooners, we're going to have big dif difficulty with the Bible. A different culture, halfway around the world, 2,000 to 4,000 years ago. It's a tough book, right? It's difficult. It's intimidating, important. All right, it's God's word, but... It's intimidating. Now, a big question when it comes to the Bible is how are we going to approach it? And somebody goes, well, you sit and read it. Okay, but how are you going to approach what's there? You know, every once in a while, you'll hear someone say, all we do is preach the Bible. All we do is teach the Bible. Yeah, I understand that. And I like the um, thought, but you really can't do that, right? How are you approaching what's there? The technical term for how you approach the Bible and understand it is the word hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is a twofold term. Hermeneutics is the science and the art of interpretation. So how do we interpret? How do we understand what's going on? Since it's a really old book written over 2,000 years ago, halfway around, how are we going to interpret and understand it? So here's what I've done. I have some pictures that will hopefully demonstrate or picture a few different approaches to the Bible. And then we'll talk about how reading it as a story 
is a more biblical approach. Here's the first one. Not honeymoon. Marbles, marbles. Lots of people, and I know many of you, have heard sermons, had small group Bible studies, Sunday school classes, ABFs. You've had lots and lots of studies and lots and lots of approaches to the Bible that treats the Bible as if it were a big giant bag of marbles. All these little pieces, right? It's a collection of marbles. And what the lesson is then, or what the sermon is, or what the small group discussion is, is almost like the leader, the facilitator, the preacher, he reaches into the bag and he pulls out some of the marbles. So, you know, since there are a lot of blue ones up there, suppose that we're going to preach a blue sermon, right? So you reach in and you take out some of the blue marbles. Well, there are too many blue marbles to talk about, so we're only going to talk about these six blue marbles, right? And you know what? Wouldn't it be cool? Let's put them in order of light blue to dark blue. So we'll do the light ones, then the medium blue ones, then the dark blue ones, and we'll talk about blue, the blue marbles of God, right? The blue marbles of the Bible from light to medium to dark. Now, there are times when we kind of have to do that with the Bible. For example, the Bible teaches, and one of the uh, absolutes of the Bible, is that God is a trinity. Okay, do you realize the word trinity never appears in the Bible? And do you realize there's no passage in the Bible that explains what the Trinity is? What do you have to do? Well, you have to take different parts of the Bible and you kind of look at what it says about Jesus, what it says about God the Father, what it says about the Spirit. You kind of put them together and you have a theological understanding of God three in one by looking at different pieces, right? But as a standard approach, that's not how the Bible was written. The Bible was not written for you to reach in, pull out a certain color, pull out some marbles, discard all the other ones, put them in the order that you like, and then expound on them or try to understand them. You may need to do that on some topics, some ideas. As a general practice, that's not the best way to approach the Bible. It's not a collection of marbles. Here's what happens. If the Bible's a collection of marbles, there is no trajectory to the story, right? But if you read the Bible, there's movement in the Bible. If you're reading Act, we'll talk about this later. If you're reading Act 2, right, God is rejected. That's not where the story ends. But if you've happened to pull out some marbles from Act 2, and all of a sudden you're going to, in the same talk, talk about marbles from Act 5, those marbles aren't, they're not in the same place in the story. Right? Does that make sense? And so there's no growth or trajectory if the Bible's flat like that. Think of um, some TV shows are like marbles, right? For example, you watch Jeopardy. Kim and I watch Jeopardy most nights. Um, Wheel of Fortune comes on after that. And do you notice? The episodes are kind of like marbles. You don't have to know what happened on Jeopardy last night to know what's going on. Well, I guess they're doing the college thing now, so you may have to know a little. Um, but the newer episodes of Jeopardy are not dependent on the older episodes of Jeopardy. Yeah, the winner may still be there, but it's completely new. Wheel of Fortune, it's completely new. Um, episode after episode, it doesn't matter how they're connected. It doesn't matter if one episode was done back in 1990 and the other done in 2021. It doesn't matter, right? Episode, many people read the Bible like that. A collection of bits, you pull them out. Here's the biggest problem with that. Your fingerprints 
The teacher's fingerprints, the preacher's fingerprints are all over that lesson, right? The preacher, teacher, she's taken the marbles out. She threw some of them back into the bag. She arranged the marbles she kept into the order that she likes. Her fingerprints are all over that lesson. Is that really God's arrangement of the marbles? Or is it hers? Interesting. There's another picture. Some staircase, a staircase. Um, now, this is a, an advance over the marble approach. At least in this approach, there is movement, right? There's a trajectory. We're moving from one experience to another to another. There's growth. And so what happened in the Old Testament or what happened in the beginning is different from what happens later. And so to use our uh, acts, act one is different than act two, act two is different than three. There's kind of movement here, right? And so it isn't the same. When you're in act three, you know you're not in act one, right? If you're in act three and that's promise, you know you're not in act one, innocent, right? So it, it's different. There's kind of growth. But here's what happens with this approach. If you treat the different steps too differently, you wind up almost with, almost with two different messages. Like they, they're not saying the same thing. They're saying something different. Is it really one story or is it a collection of six, seven, eight stories? Is there movement from one act to the next or is it almost like seven stories together? Um, this theology, technically, the, the name for this, um, technical term, this would be a dispensational approach, right? That's why I have seven steps. <laughs> um, and so here's the big emphasis with a step approach to the Bible. Discontinuity trumps continuity. So discontinuity. The new act is more different than it is similar to the preceding act. Make sense? And so it's different. It, they're more different than they are more alike. So you can think of, um, what, what would be, I think I wrote a show here. Oh, how about this one? Law and Order. How many of you have seen Law and Order? You won't believe, I, I mentioned Law and Order this week. Two staff members, oh, we probably only mentioned it before. Two of the four or five staff members had never seen Law and Order. How in the world can you live in our world? Now, it's on 24-7. It's been on that way for decades, right? But here's what happens in Law and Order. You know that it's different. You're in a different act because Jack's either there or not there, right? And, um, you know, Olivia's there or not there. And, and there's, but one episode is not dependent on the other episode. In fact, it's different. And so is it Law and Order SVU? Is it Law and Order, you know, organized crime? Is it, they're different. Some of the characters are the same, but they're different, right? They're discontinuous. They're not similar. Well, then uh, some other people come along and say, yeah, we don't like that approach. So we've got this approach. The Bible is like a giant, it looks like a ski slope in the Olympic, a giant ski slope, right? And here's how this approach works. The Bible has movement. The Bible has a trajectory. And here's the important thing. I can stand at the foot of the ramp and clearly see how everything fits. And I can see Jesus at the top of the mountain. This approach is kind of like a Hallmark movie, right? Um, that's Carlos's favorite. Um, you ever notice in a Hallmark movie, it comes on and you know how it's going to end. 
Isn't that right? There may be some twists and turns. The end is never in doubt, right? Yeah, they may have some bumps in the relationship, but by the time the end comes, it's all going to work out perfectly. Yeah, this is, this is the more um, kind of reform, sorry, approach to the Bible. And that is, regardless of where I read the Bible, I can crystal clearly see how this and everything in it points clearly to Jesus, right? You've heard preachers like that? You always get to, and you hear me say that, but it's not that neat and clean, right? In fact, maybe a better approach would be like this. The Bible's like a giant mountain. I've never climbed a mountain like this. Looks pretty intimidating, doesn't it? Looks pretty scary. Looks like you could get lost pretty easy. There are cul-de-sacs and dead ends. And without the right perspective, uh, I may think, if I'm down here, I may think this is the summit. Until I get there, then I realize, no, I have more to go. Um, So this is much messier to see the Bible this way. It's not crystal clear. Sometimes you're reading, you're working through a passage, and you can't see how we're getting out of this mess, right? In fact, I was reading this afternoon. You you want a good place to see the um, morass, the twists and turns, the cul-de-sacs and dead ends of the Bible. Read Psalm 89. It's pretty long. You read it. The whole first two-thirds of the psalm are all about Great is God's faithfulness. That's where the hymn comes from. Great is God's faithfulness. And God is faithful to the covenant. God will never allow a descendant of David to not be on the throne, right? It's perfectly, it's going to work out. God promises. God's never going to allow the throne to be vacant. And then right about two-thirds of the way through the psalm, it says, and the whole thing fell apart. God is faithless. There's no son, descendant of David on the throne. Now, you may say, yeah, but we know the rest of the Bible. Yeah, but when they're writing Psalm 89, all of a sudden they're looking around and it's not that ramp, right? They can't see clearly to the end. Maybe it's the exile. Maybe it's the divided kingdom. Maybe it's Rehoboam. Something's going on, but they can't see how it's going to fit together. They're stuck in a morass. They can't figure it out. Now, eventually the rest of the story comes The good news is that we, as Christians, we read the Bible kind of top to bottom. We read the Bible back to front. We know where it's going, so we're not going to get lost in the cul-de-sac. We know where it's going, so we're going to be able to find our way out. But boy, don't jump out of the cul-de-sac too quickly. Don't get out of the dead end too quickly. Spend time there spinning your wheels. See what's going on. Feel what the authors are feeling. You know, Psalm 89, they feel like this is over. God, you've rejected us. How in the world can you made these promises and you haven't kept them? You're not faithful. You're faithless. This is a mess. It's a mountain with lots of twists and turns, cul-de-sacs, false summits, lots of craziness. Make sense? Different approaches. So we're going to take kind of the mountain approach. Now, here are a couple of points that come immediately out of the Bible being a story, not a collection of bits, not a stairway that has lots of um, discontinuity, not a ramp where things are crystal clear, but much more of a mountain with dark hallways and such. Um, and, And just let me say this if some of you are wondering. The stairway, that approach, that emphasizes how things are discontinuous, things are more different than alike, And the ramp approach, 
would say things are more alike than they are different. Now, notice where those two approaches go. The one approach would be the stairway. That would be more, be more Baptist. So how do Baptists approach the Bible, right? The Old Testament is more different than the New Testament. Therefore, baptism is not like circumcision. The church is not like Israel. The ramp approach, they're going to say, no, 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 no. Um, we see the ramp all the way through. Baptism is like circumcision. Therefore, we baptize infants just like infants were baptized. That's the ramp. Israel is the church. The church is the new Israel, right? So there are theological approaches that get to all of those differences that we fight about. That war, those debates are not going to be won in arguing details. Those differences come in approach to the Bible. They don't come in the details of the Bible. Make sense? That's how that works. Okay, so some things that come out of the story or the mountain. Here, here are a few really important things. If you've never heard these exact words, if you've been here much, you, you, you know we say this, I say this all the time. The Bible is not a book of rules. We don't approach the Bible as a book of rules. The Bible does contain a whole bunch of rules and a whole bunch of, you can't read much of it until you get a whole bunch of commands. The Bible does not contain rules that the Bible does have rules and commands show us the best way to live, but it's not mainly about you and me and what we should be doing. The Bible's about what God has done and graciously delivered to us. Notice if the Bible is a rule book, self-help is salvation. If it's a book of rules, you need to keep the rules, right? So all the burden's on you, right? So if the Bible's a rule, but you better keep the rules. The Bible also is not a book of heroes. If the Bible, now again, there are lots of heroic guys in the Bible. Um, the Bible shows us people we should copy, shows us things that we shouldn't be doing in the lives of other people. But if the Bible is a collection of heroes, then we have to learn about the heroes emulate the heroes at self-help again, right? So if I line up all the rules, I keep the rules, I'm good. God will bless me because I've jumped through all the hoops. If I line up all the heroes, I do what the heroes did, refrain from what the heroes refrained from, I'm in, God will bless me because of what I've done. Rules and heroes always lead to self-help. There's no place for grace. If the Bible's a rule book we need to keep and God blesses us for keeping the rules, he was stupid for sending Jesus to die for our sins. We could have done it ourselves. If the Bible's a book of heroes, we just emulate the heroes and do what they say. God was a fool to send Jesus. We could have done it if we just followed the right heroes. No, it's not self-help. The Bible's a story of what God has done. So you probably heard me say, religion is spelled D-O. The gospel is spelled D-O-N-E. We don't do it. God has done it and gives us the results of what he has done. That's a big difference. What is the Bible then? Well, the Bible is um, the adventure of the hero who comes to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a prince who leaves the palace to rescue the one he loves. Lots of stories, but all the stories tell one big story. That's what the Bible is. Just like those Russian nesting dolls, you've seen those? That's where the Bible is. Lots of little stories. They all together, they tell the one big story. Don't get lost in the little stories and neglect the big story. All the little dolls on the inside, 
They lead to the big doll on the outside. They picture the doll. I was talking to somebody the other day. This was great. I'm, I'm probably going to work this in somehow Sunday. Um, I forget. He mentioned the author's name, and I don't think he's right. Um, here's what he said. He said, I was reading this thing, and uh, the author said, the whole Christian life, all of it, boils down to two words. The whole, I'm thinking, man, I need to hear this. I got a big book, 1,300 pages. Two words. Help and thank you. You got to admit, you need help. You can't do it. God has done it. You say thanks and live thanks. The Christian life, the gospel is two words. Help. Thank you. Don't just say it. Live it. That's the story, right? That's it. All right, so let's uh, see how some of what we're talking about can make sense or how it may not fit um, with some of what we see in our world. As we go through life, right, the Bible's a big story. I'll use the word story and narrative interchangeably here. We live in a world where lots of stories are presented and told, right? So there, there isn't one cultural, lots of cultural stories. And then into that world, you come to church, right? You come to Calvary, you go to another church, you kind of read, you go online, just, and you learn the biblical story. And so you got the cultural story and you got the biblical story. Or more accurately, you've got the cultural narratives, right? Lot, lots of them. And then you've got the biblical narrative. Um, but we often don't, learn the biblical story like this, do we? We follow one of the other approaches. Most often, we probably follow the marble approach. Um, and if we're going to be honest, the cultural story has lots of gaps in it, right? I mean, if you push back on the cultural stories a little bit, um, everybody knows they don't work. But what are you going to do? You have to believe some story. And you're bombarded with the story. So eventually you say, yeah, I guess I believe it, even though technically, you know, it doesn't work. Um, and, but you notice in a narrative, any cultural narrative, any, any cultural story tells you how it got started, tells you what the problem is, tells you what the solution is, and tells you what the results will be. That's what narratives do. And so you've probably heard, and, and I, I think this, um, you've probably heard that one of the things that we need to develop and live out is a Christian and biblical worldview. But here's the dilemma. I've never met a person, certainly I've never, I didn't come to a worldview, and you don't come to your worldview by answering the worldview questions. You don't sit down and say, okay, now let me figure this out. Where did we come from? Okay. How did we get here? What's the main problem? What's the solution? Where are we headed? That's not how you come to your worldview. You come to your worldview by choosing a narrative that you're familiar with, that you've heard, and then, just like I said at the beginning, you then read your life into that narrative, and that narrative answers all the worldview questions for you. So, for example, here are some of the cultural narratives that are, you know, they have gaps. Here's one. What's the problem? The problem is ignorance. The problem is people need to learn. 
What's the solution? If the problem is ignorance, the solution is education. Well, if the solution is education, then what do we have to do? We have to get everybody to get educated. And so that cultural narrative says, okay, when the GIs are coming home from World War II, we're going to have the GI Bill. We're going to send them all to college. Nothing wrong with going to college. Send them all to college. Because if they go to college, they get educated. If they get educated, ignorance kind of diminishes. And if they're educated, their life kind of fits, right? And what do we have to do well with young people? And they need to go to school. They need to graduate high school. They need to go to college. You graduate college. They need to go to grad school. And just keep going to school. And if you get educated the problems are going to go away because everybody knows the problem is ignorance. The solution is education. So we need to marshal our forces and get everybody educated. Well, here's a little bit of the gap. Right now, we have in the United States a more educated population than ever in U.S. history. So all of our problems have been solved. No, we just have smart sinners now, right? We have smarter sinners. Um, well, but, but nobody stops to say, well, wait a minute. The cultural narrative doesn't have any clothes. It's, a, we, we, it's not working. If the problem is ignorance, then the solution is education. But we've educated everybody, but the problems aren't getting stopped. In fact, some of the problems are getting bigger. Oh, here's another um, problem. Oh, the problem, uh, sorry, the problem was not ignorance. The problem is economics. The problem is poverty. So the solution, if the problem is poverty, the solution is we need to make sure nobody's in poverty. Now, again, it's not good to be in poverty. We need to work to get people. I'm not saying that. But if the problem is poverty, the solution then is finances. We need to give people money. Well, you do realize, you know, since like the 1960s, literally trillions and trillions of dollars have been thrown at people in poverty. Therefore, all of our problems are now gone. No. See, something's not right with the narrative. Um, we're the, there was never a time in the United States when poverty was as bad as during the Depression. And right, that was horrific. I wasn't there, but I know some people that were. Um, I mean, that was horrific. But you do realize they had major problems. In some ways, we have bigger problems today. Well... Maybe it's the wrong narrative, but you almost can't ask the question, right? Um, the narrative tells you the problem. The narrative then gives you the answer. We read our life into a narrative, and then we develop our worldview from the narrative. Now, here is a big problem, and the church is a contributor to this. I hope you recognize the culture gives us lots of stories, right? It's the story of, you know, racism is the problem. And the solution would be if we can eradicate racism, right? The solution is education. The solution is finance and resource. All those things. All those things are solutions that we need to work toward, by the way, right? But they're clearly not the biggest problems because as we address them, nothing's getting solved. So there are gaps in the cultural story. But then here's where the church fails. You go to church. You go to small group. And we learn this. We don't learn a narrative. We learn the four marbles of Moses. We learn the three marbles of Paul. We learn the scattered marble of Peter and John. Um, and so we have these Bible bits. 
So we're bombarded with narratives that aren't necessarily whole, but they at least seem to make sense, even though they have gaps. We then go to church and we get this. And so we're not getting a story. We're not getting a narrative. Okay, so you tell me. If you live in a world that continue gives you this, you go to church and you get this, what do you immediately want to do? What, what do you want to do with that? Yeah, you want to take the biblical bits and you want to fill in the gap. And that is exactly what we do. We take our little biblical bits and we apply them to a cultural narrative. And so I'll say it crassly. We use biblical bits to support the wrong narrative. Don't believe me? We've talked a lot about self-help tonight. Um, I can tell you the majority of people that go to church would believe something like this. If you live a good life, you will get the good life. Isn't that right? You live a good life, you get the good life, right? If you jump through the hoops, God will bless you, right? You say your prayers, you live, you know, God will, right? God will, if you live a good life, God will give you the good life. That's not the gospel. In fact, I can prove that's not the gospel because if Jesus doesn't fit your narrative, you've got the wrong narrative. Did Jesus live a good life? He lived a perfect life. So Jesus got the good life, right? He got the worst life. Jesus lived a perfect life and he got the worst life. So how in the world can we believe um, you live a good life, you get the good. That's the self-help message. I can tell you how, because we live in a world that gives us that narrative, right? We live in a world of performance and we train little kids, right? And we fight, I fight against this all the time. We train our little kids when they grow up, right? You're obedient, we'll give you M&Ms. Go on the potty, you get a Snickers bar, right? If you get good grades in school, I'll take you to the mall and buy you a gift. You graduate high school with good grades, We'll buy you a car, right? Um, if, if you do what we want, you get the pay. We're bombarded with that. We go to church. We don't get a narrative. We get biblical bits. What do we do? We take Bible verses that seem to support that narrative and we plug them into that narrative. And before you know it, we're using the Bible to support the wrong story all the time. How about the, uh, let's, exa let's exaggerate that. The self-help thing, ratcheted up exponentially, turns into the prosperity gospel. Prosperity gospel is just self-help on steroids. What do you do? Well, if you say the right prayers, if you do the right things, then God will bless you. If you send me a check, God will send you a bigger check, right? And, that, and so we use Bible verses. We say, well, you know, if you sow a seed, God will bring you an awesome harvest. We take biblical verses, right? If you pray, if you give, if you give, press down, shake together, God's going to return it to you. If you tithe, God will throw open the windows of heaven and bless you beyond you. We're taking biblical bits and supporting the wrong story. And sometimes it happens on a bigger scale. And again, I don't mean, no, maybe I do. I, I don't mean to step on toes too much, but have you uh, heard in an American church, what we really need to do 
to get our country back on track is 2 Chronicles 7.14, right? If my people are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then God will bless their land. Couple problems, couple problems. Now again, the point of that verse is this. The righteousness of a nation, God will always exalt the righteousness of a nation. I'm not denying that. But I'm saying this. The my people in that chapter is not Americans. The my people is Israel. The land is not America. The land is Israel, the land of the covenant that God's promising that he promised to Abraham. Um, so the principle, the righteousness of a nation, God will exalt. But it, it, that's not an American verse. Um, the principle works, but you're supporting the wrong narrative, right? You're supporting the prosperity of America with a verse that's for Israel and the, Israel, the Hebrew covenant that comes from Abraham. See how that works? We support the wrong narratives with the Bible all the time. The solution is to learn the biblical story and live the biblical story. Not, and personally, what is that? I mean, individually. This is applying the Bible to your life. You provide the trajectory. You provide the momentum. You provide the energy. You provide all of that. You set the trajectory, and then you apply the Bible to your life. That's what this is. We shouldn't be applying the Bible to our lives. We should be applying our lives to the Bible, living in that story. Jesus lived the best life, and he got the worst life. A whole lot of verses seem to support that, right? But we don't like those verses, so we'll pick and choose. We don't like the narrative. We pick and choose and wind up supporting the wrong narrative. Now, we'll talk about the right narrative. We'll do that next week. In fact, I'll give you a little um, preview. Here's our story. Different icons, but the same story, right? So here's how we talk about that. Here's why all that background leads to why we did the story. Here's the story of God in six acts. God creates. God is rejected. God promises. God appears. God sends. God restores. That's the story. We read our lives into that story. And we are right here. We're not here, 2 Chronicles 7.14, we're not here living naked in a garden. We're over here, God sends. Oh, isn't that interesting? We don't want to go, we, we, we want to sit, um, but we're here. See how that works? The Bible's a story, a big story, a meta-narrative. Meta just means beyond. It's the big story, beyond the story that all the other stories fit into. And if we approach the Bible like that and apply our lives to the Bible, all of a sudden, things begin to make sense. It's not going to be crystal clear all the time. You're going to get lost in cul-de-sacs and you'll be looking at false peaks as you're reading, but it all comes together and we read the Bible back to front. I quoted him, I put that thing up there from Stephen James. And uh, here's the quote again. When Christianity becomes something other than entering into and living out the story of God, right? Applying your lives to the Bible. Um, if it becomes something other than that, but it stings, it becomes something other than Christianity. Christianity is not D-O. Christianity is D-O-N-E. 
It's not self-help. It's Jesus' rescue. The Christian life is help. Thank you. It's a whole different story. But God's story isn't over. It's still being told today. Each one of us has the potential to become both a chapter of history and a chapter of his story. I have an old video. Quality's not that great. The voice may not, the lips may not. It may be one like, like one of those old Godzilla movies with the Japanese people on it. Um, but if, you could ju- if, if it gets too distracting, just close your eyes. Listen to Stephen James. Talk about the Bible as a story and how we can read our lives into that story. It'll change how you read. That's Ralph. That's not Stephen. When I was a kid, my uncle always used to tell us stories. Whenever we would get together for Christmas, holidays, family vacations, things like that, fairy tales, pirates' adventures, dragons, happily ever after. Even if we only saw him for half an hour a year, he'd take the kids into a corner and he'd get this look in his eye. If you've ever had someone tell you stories, you know the look. And he'd take us to another world. Everyone should have an uncle like that. What if, what if there was a story that had all of the mystery and wonder of the fairy tales, all of the adventure and power of the legends, all the truth of the fables, the intricate plot twists of a good novel, all of the summer romance of a chick flick? What kind of a story would that be? story that was both true and told the truth. story that was big enough to change the world, but yet simple enough for a, for a child to understand. A story in which the prince really does battle the dragon to rescue his bride, in which the king really does welcome them home to his castle in the end, where they really do live happily ever after. A story like that could change everything. It could change me. There really is such a story. A tale that stretches from Eden to eternity, from a choice in a garden to a man on a cross, from a curse of thorns to a crown of thorns to an empty tomb. It's the story we've all been longing to hear, hoping to find. A story that's bigger than life, but yet just the right size to fit in your heart. Sometimes I picture Jesus sitting around a campfire with his buddies, telling them stories, talking about the kingdom. He's got that look in his eye. You know the look. He takes him to another world. A place where there are no more skid marks and scars. Where there's no more cancer or divorce. Where our priorities and motives don't get all mixed up like they do here. We live such splintered, twisted, tangled lives here on this side of happily ever after. When you finally discover the story, his story, and enter it for yourself, 
you find out that it was really the story that entered and at last untangled you. Enter the tale. Recapture the mystery. The prince really does come and battle the dragon. It wins his beauty and takes her home forever. You know, one of the things that I often find so different when you read the Gospels and you hear Jesus preach, and you listen to sometimes how we talk about the Bible and we preach. Check it out. Jesus never shames people. Nobody on a guilt trip. What's he do? He paints a picture of the kingdom. He says, this is what you were built for. Let me tell you how this story ends. Yeah, we're on the mountain now and we're climbing and there are lots of twists and turns and there are going to be dangerous you know, caverns that we have to go through and valleys and you may wind up going up the wrong summit. You may get stuck in a, in a cul-de-sac or get lost for a minute. But at the top, there's no cancer. There's no broken hearts. The prince wins the story and it all fits together. And Jesus says, come and get that. Enter that. And when people hear Jesus summoning them to that, they realize they're inadequate and can't enter. To which he says, I've already taken care of that. Just say help and live a life of thank you. That's the story. Don't settle for some collection of marbles or a staircase that cuts up the Bible or something that's real simple like a Hallmark movie where everything's crystal clear. Get your rope and climb the mountain. Wrestle with the story. It'll change you and make you ready for the end of the story. Let's pray. Father, we talked a lot about theory tonight. But the end of the, the-, the end of theory is approach. And the end of theory is really practice. There's nothing more practical than a really good theory. So how do we approach the Bible? It's not a collection of things that I need to put together. It's not a disjointed stairway that I need to figure out what the puzzle is. It's not a ramp that's easy. It's a mountain. And your spirit comes and ties us to him. It says, let's start climbing. So Lord, as we read our lives into the story, help us to experience it, to be changed by it, to call others to that adventure too. And help us to not settle for a simplistic way of looking at what it says or compartmentalizing or trying to dissect and put the pieces together. Help us to read the story. Read our lives into the story. We pray in the name of the prince that came to take us home. Amen. All right, folks. Well, next week it's much more practical. We'll talk about the six acts, how it fits together. But you needed to know there's a whole support structure to the six acts. It's not just six acts that are floating around. 
there's a support structure that's pretty strong on which that story sits. We'll do that part next week. Hope you had a good week. Don't forget the slides will be on hopefully this week. And we'll see you next Wednesday.